right now we're not confident linking too many metrics from jump variables or jump based variables to this decelerative property. Yeah. Um, but I think the the concept itself is really strong and one that warrants fleshing out, which is why we're we're going to pursue it. Right, understanding how some of these jump parameters are just you know more simpler, more attainable. Uh, lab-based measures relate to maybe a more field-based test like the, the ADA. And ultimately where we'd like to take this one is kind of understanding how those same uh, accelerative or decelerative metrics relate to Encore principles as well. So, you know, accelerometer or kind of gyroscope data. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Today on the Pacey Performance Podcast, we have Eric Leidersdorf, who is Director of Biomechanics at P3. P3 are a private organization based in Santa Barbara, but also have a facility in Atlanta, which is where I spoke to Eric from today and anyone that's interested in jump training and basketball and jump training will know of p3 so they test and train athletes from all over the world what i found out in this discussion here today including some youth athletes in the german national team but predominantly basketball athletes and it's jump testing and training that i want to wanted to dive in with eric today so we got a real insight into the learnings funny stories and experiences of testing some of the best jump athletes in the world in the NBA. So if you are using jump testing, whether it be daily monitoring or whether it be just jump testing to see the improvements in various different metrics with your athletes, this episode is going to give you an insight into why we use jump training in the first place and some of the key metrics that we can use to give us an insight into our athletes' physical performance. So over to Eric. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And also sponsoring this episode is Samsung Equipment. Samsung Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samsung provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samsung brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samsung team brings many years of experience not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samsung underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsungequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsungequipment.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo 
or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Eric. Eric Leidersdorf, welcome to the Pacing Performance Podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to great to be here. No, thank you very much. I must say, got to thank Luke Story for the introduction. There's always an introduction behind every guest. And when it's as solid as what Luke provided, I need to say thank you. <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming on, mate. Uh, of course, as much as it pains me to thank Luke as well, I will I will do so. So thanks to, to both of you guys. I appreciate it. I'm yeah, excited to be here. You've had some great guests to this point, and yeah, I'm looking forward to selling that reputation. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't know who you are, Eric. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a background on you? What are you doing now? What you've done previously? Because you've got a bit of a different than different background than a traditional, let me say. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, I'm currently the director of biomechanics at P3. Um, so we, we're based out of Santa Barbara, California. We've got a couple of facilities, one in Atlanta, Georgia as well, which, I'm at where, which is where I am now. Um, but I've been at P3 for about 10 and a half years at this point. Um, and you know, over the course of that time, I've um, you know, really worked with our biomechanics team um, to kind of oversee our, our assessment process, going through everything from data collection to acquisition, um, on through any ultimate analytics projects that we that we run. So, you know, in, in school, I studied biomechanical engineering you know, as an undergraduate, master's in applied analytics. So we're getting a little more stats heavy with with some of the work that we're doing. Um, but having been at P3 for, you know, for for that decade plus, um, a lot of my time spent, uh, you know, working in, in basketball, you know, American football, world football, baseball, number of sports where you know, I have the good fortune to work with. Super interesting. So, I mean, was it a, I'm guessing obviously it wasn't a traditional pathway into the, into the role you are now, but was, was getting involved in sport or was the, or was something that was a passion of yours from the biomechanical engineering, you still thought that the path may lead to sport or not at all? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, grew up just loving sport, right. And playing every sport not you know, never at a high level, but grew up loving it. Uh, you know, always had some kind of aptitude for math or, or physics in that direction as well. But I'd say biomechanics is something that I really sort of stumbled across. You know, I think I initially went to university with, you know, thoughts of being, you know, any other type of engineer, frankly. Um, and, you know, between switching majors more than a handful of times between, you know, pre-med and, you know, electrical engineering, um, sort of found my way, you know, after a couple of winding years to, um, you know, to the biomechanics track. Um, and I think P3, uh, when I ultimately found my way, my way there, I, I think it was a great kind of opportunity for me to apply a lot of what I'd learned in undergrad, you know, as a, you know, kind of as a biomechanics student. Um, but there were some really, you know, impressive tools at this private facility. And they had some, you know, really impressive athletes who, you know, were, uh, you know, I was fortunate to use to, to be able to, to study, um, you know, a lot of things that we'd learned about in, in school. So it was, it was a great opportunity. And I was very fortunate to kind of stumble upon that role. In the US, in sports like basketball, like baseball, are specific biomechanics roles becoming more popular? Whether whether employing someone directly for that area? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So it, you know, particularly in a sport like baseball, I know that they're you know you know at the at the highest level in Major League Baseball, I'd say every team or, or close to it has at least one kind of biomechanics uh, staff member um, as a part of their part of their sports science team or performance team. Um, and in other sports, I think it's becoming increasingly more popular, but um, in baseball, you know, especially as, as it's really sort of gravitated towards a more analytic centric uh, approach to the game, it's, it's become a much more popular position. It's becoming cool. Dare I say biomechanics is becoming cool. Hey, uh, you, you might, but you might be the only one at this <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> nice, right. Right. Let's dive into the into the stuff that you do on a day-to-day basis or P3 do on a day-to-day basis. And that's, that's around jumping, jump testing, jump training, et cetera, sure. with, the, with some of the athletes that you work with. And one thing that I want to drag it right back, we're talking a lot about jump testing. And I spoke to Jason Lake um, four or five years ago on this as well. And he's like, there's all this jump testing going on, but why, are we, why do we pick the jump to then infer things from a, different in different uh, dynamic actions etc so i'm going to bring that back to you why do we assess jumps and what can that what's what's the basis that, that gives us it's i mean it's a, it's a great question uh, and i think i think the answer depends a bit depending on the sport that you're working with 
Um, so there are certain sports like basketball, like volleyball, very jumping intensive sports where maybe there are some pretty straightforward links between the jumps that you'll study on force plates or with motion capture and ultimately certain strategies or things that are used on court. Um, but for, for other sports, right, the, the footballs, the baseballs of the world, um, you know, I think when we use jump testing, we're using it more generally to assess physical qualities that have implications with respect to training. Um, you know, so certain work that we can do in the weight room or on the pitch that um, ultimately is going to relate to, uh, you know, back to some qualities that are going to be beneficial for the athlete. So in certain respects, and frankly, the sports that we work most closely with, which is, which is basketball at, at P3, um, you know, there are some very direct or almost, you know, linear links between uh, jump testing that we can do and some, you know, leaps that we can make to uh, outcomes that occur on court. Um, but for certain other sports, I think it's important to know that we're dealing with a slightly abstracted view um, of uh, what that jump testing tells us, force production at various phases of the movement, um, you know, that will have some implication, um, you know, down the road to some work we can do in the, you know, in a training environment. Would I be way off in thinking, this is maybe my skepticism, but would I be way off in thinking that people just take it as given that jump testing is the way to go to make those linear links to other performance outcomes? I mean, I, th I think that's fair. Uh, I think it's, it's fair just because it's been so commonplace, right? You know, sometimes I think we uh, confuse gold standard for just most common. Um, and jumps are relatively easy to, to study, right? You know, you know, when you talk or when we think about, um, you know, particularly different force play technologies that have become much more ubiquitous in the past, I don't know, five years, you know, last five to 10 years, give or take. Um, you know, I think the ability to study jumps has become much easier um, or much, you know, much more accessible, I guess is maybe a better way to put it. Um, and, you know, from that, when people have information, they're going to try and understand. And that's where some of those links start to, start to be made. But, um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of that just has to do with kind of the ease of, of kind of data uh, collection, I suppose, which is, which has improved considerably. Um, yeah, I think to, to some extent we saw um, a similar trend when it comes to uh, load monitoring or GPS tracking, you know, as that becomes more popular, you know, I think the line between gold standard and, you know, very common, um, you know, starts to get blurred a little bit. Which leads me on to my next question. And what, what, solid yeah, I suppose solid-ish links can we make between metrics that we can collect on a, on a force plate for example and things that happen on court or on field um I, you know I, I think the the answer is it depends to some extent right you know and a lot of it depends on how uh kind of how certain you are in, in some of those findings um when it comes to you know i, I would say generally speaking there has been a lot of research applied to linking uh, you know, jumping or jump strategies to kind of accelerative properties, right? When we think about more linear sprinting, um, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, there have been kind of a number of papers sort of linking those uh, those two outcomes, I suppose. And um, Damien Harper as well has, you know, kind of brought deceleration to the yeah. forefront or, you know, especially starting to popularize it a bit more as well. And I think there are certainly some links between certain jump measures and decelerative ability here, here too. Um, you know, so I, I think there's certainly some degree of, uh, there's certainly some degree of certainty that you can probably apply to, um, I don't know, non-jumping actions that you can get a, you know, a fingerprint on or sort of link back to some jump outcomes. But, um, you know, you're always going to get a bit more granularity if you study the movement itself, probably, okay. assuming the technology is in a place where you can get, get good data on it. And that's probably where the interesting discussion comes with deceleration. Because I was speaking to Damien and a few others uh, last week or the week before around the technology available to assess deceleration and how hard that actually is because there's yep. so many moving parts um, and how you actually standardize it, the tests available, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, which maybe links back to why people are trying to use, force, use jumping and, and force plates to try to infer deceleration qualities. If you're trying to do that, what kind of metrics are we actually interested in when it comes to that link? Um, well, sorry, sorry. When it comes to links between the kind of jump or counter jump studies to decelerative properties? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, well, good question. <laughs> uh, and it's one that I think we're 
hoping to shed a bit more light on here moving forward. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we're actually using um, or kind of adapting some of, of Damien's work and studying some kind of ADA principles in yeah. our basketball athletes at, yeah. you know, in P3. Again, much shorter court than, you know, some of the other other sports as well. So the distances are going to be a little bit different. But um, Jake Roush, who's a member of our, our team, is going to um, you know, use this project uh, you know, for kind of uh, for his PhD process. So it's something we've been piloting, I'd say, for about the past 18 months. And right now, I don't think what work, you know, right now we're not confident linking too many metrics from jump variables or jump based variables to this decelerative property. Yeah. Um, but I think the the concept itself is really strong and one that warrants fleshing out, which is why we're, we're going to pursue it, right? Understanding how some of these jump parameters are just, you know, more simpler, more attainable, uh, lab-based measures relate to maybe a more field-based test like the, the ADA. And then ultimately where we'd like to take this one is kind of understanding how those same uh, accelerative or decelerative metrics relate to on-court principles as well. So, you know, accelerometer or kind of gyroscope data um, collected from athletes going through drills that start to stress these, um, you know, these, these abrupt changes of direction as well um, is really where we want to, you know, start to start to understand these, these links. Because right now, I would say for the, the work that we've done internally, our most interesting uh, examples kind of live with the outliers, right? They live with the, you know, the guys who sort of like well exceed the, the norm. Um, but when it comes to understanding the property as a whole, I don't know that that's something we have really clear insight on yet. Yeah. One thing that I think is really exciting and just going through your Twitter feed, like I do before I speak to, <laughs> well, P3's Twitter oh, feed. I was going to say, hopefully not mine. <laughs> mine's, there's, there's not much there. Yeah. Well, I went through, had a little look at yours and P3, let me to P3. And then just even going back three, four, four years, looking at some of the internal work that's been going on and, and you sharing them, I think as a private organization, that's really exciting because you have the ability to do that and to kind of open the door on what you do. And it always excites me, especially with yes, the podcast, but with the articles when people have done internal studies and gone, this is what we found. This is on our cohort. It's not going to go in a published journal ever but we're happy to talk about it on either a podcast or an article. For me, that is absolute gold. And that's the kind of thing that you are doing daily, you know, I, with, with you and your staff. Yeah. Well, sure. Well, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate it. And I, you know, on behalf of P3, we, we appreciate that yeah. sentiment. I think, um, you know, again, you know, being in the, the private sector, I think it's important for us to, um, to show some degree of, or, you know, not some degree, hopefully show, kind of, you know, as much transparency as we can with respect to the, the numbers that we collect uh, and the implications of, you know, that data for training outcomes or for just general decision-making. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it, it's something that's, you know, kind of important quality for, uh, you know, for, for P3 to carry moving forward. You know, we do have a goal moving ahead as well to start putting some of our more, you know, what we think of as foundational um, findings in literature as well. So we are kind of trying to tip toe through the, you know, the, the publication process, but um, no, we've, yeah, I think we've been able, you know, we've been very fortunate to learn some really interesting things by asking good questions. Um, and ultimately we want to start to, you know, we want to, we want to share them. You know, it does, doesn't do us a whole lot of good to just, just sit on them. Awesome. I mean, I know how protective organizations are about the data that gets shared. How, because you're, you're, coaching and testing athletes that aren't yours and like an organization has a contract with an athlete. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that for you to share those kind of things as a private organization? Uh, I, I guess it depends. So in certain instances, you know, a lot of it, like anything else is relationship driven, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's good transparency, particularly between uh, the organization and the athlete, which isn't always the case, um, you know, that makes things much simpler. Right. But there are certainly instances where, um, you know, we have to make sure we can work to effectively communicate the things that we've found um, to the athlete or to their support staff, whether that's personally, you know, for their kind of off-season support staff or with the team that they're, you know, that they're a part of. Um, so we, we do our best. It's certainly uh, not a one-size-fits-all approach when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. Gosh. Just moving on to the assessment tools that we have available to us, obviously, we, we Many of us and the people listening have used a just jump mat and then moved on to, I don't know, Pasco force plates at a, mm -hmm. a reasonable price and then onto the more Hawking Dynamics, etc. But now we've got things like Michaelis Motion Capture, which I spoke to, like I mentioned to before, speaking to people sure. in the NFL because they've have they been given like a, a diary system. 
yes, some of them? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, so good you've number. Got, you've, got, you've got systems like that. How reliable, I mean, just going on the, on the Markless systems, where are we at with understanding what they can do, what they can give us reliability-wise, et cetera? Um, we're getting there. Okay. Um, so I think, so we, we've used a semi motion capture system for, you know, the past 10 or so years, give or take. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've run a number of, um, kind of validation studies looking at our more traditional marker-based approach, um, to the, the markerless system, you know, with semi and also, you know, some competitors too. Um, and I think, uh, the, the short answer is right now, I would say, uh, the marker-based model is generally a bit more reliable when it mm -hmm. comes to looking at some of these more granular measures of biomechanics. But, um, you know, there are certainly some real logistical benefits to um, a marker-based system when it comes to post-processing time, which, you know, almost doesn't exist or, or can be shortened considerably relative to, to a marker-based system. Um, you know, and then, uh, yeah, especially in a team environment where, you know, time is of the essence. And, you know, at P3, we're fortunate to have a, a great staff of Biomax to, you know, help crunch the numbers. Whereas if you can get a, a system to do that for you, you know, it certainly saves you some, you know, kind of some, some, you know, logistical headache in, in that sense. Um, so in general, I think it's, it's getting there and we've seen kind of notable improvements in markerless, markerless motion capture capabilities. Um, but you're certainly not quite hitting the same, you know, gold standard, I think that you're getting from, um, you know, from a, a marker-based motion capture system, um, or at least one that we've been kind of accustomed to, uh, to working with, I guess, going back to our conversation at the, at the start, right. Is more common golden standard, you know, where, where's the line between those two. Yeah. Um, so in general, I'd be surprised if, uh, we didn't see continued improvements with respect to markerless motion capture. I think it's, um, I, I think it's certainly, um, you know, coming, um, and in, you know, at some point we're going to have to make a choice between, uh, and we're just going to have to make a decision on how good is good enough. Um, and when, you know, and, and when Marcos get to a point where it's, it's good enough, I think, um, you know, it's going to make sense to jump into that with two feet. What's the price implications for markerless versus marker systems? General ballpark. Good question. I, I don't know. Okay. All right. I guess I, I guess I, I, I don't, I don't know. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, no, you know, there, there are markerless systems that kind of run the, run the gamut, right. You can have, you know, even mm. some groups are trying to use the, the iPhone, you know, one or two to, to try and capture, um, you know, some of these, some of these measures and others are, you know, like we use a eight camera marker based motion capture setup. That's, you know, again, just more traditional lab based system. Um, as far as the price differences are concerned, I'm not certain. Uh, but that is something I should probably figure out. I'll report back. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. I was just seeing if, uh, if you knew, but that's absolutely no problem. I'm going to ask you a big question now. And anyone that's All discussing, right. anyone that have, I've had on who's discussing false plates and jump training, jump testing, et cetera, what metrics actually matter? Because any system that you're going to get, you're going to be like, a, I suppose, similar to a GPS system. You're going to be throwing lots of different metrics. Yes, some may be displayed on a, on a particular dashboard that make it easy for the user and try to, um, yeah, simplify things. But at the end of the day, you're going to have lots of options. Yeah. So what options actually matter? I, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate answer is probably that it depends, um, you know, kind of depends what matters to you. Right. So if, if you're a, um, if you're a coach and, you know, if you're a, a sport coach and something matters to you, it's probably, you know, my role or anyone's role as a sports science practitioner to, um, you know, find some measures that reliably repeatedly assess, you know, what that quality is and, uh, you know, course correct or, or, you know, or inform as, as needed. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the short answer is it probably is probably that it, it depends on what quality we're discussing, right? So when we think about um, our traditional kind of, you know, vertical plane indicators, right? When we're talking about a, a counter movement jump or a depth jump or a squat jump, anything along those lines, I think, um, you know, we've seen based on sort of our, our, our studies that we've run in house, one that we that we published, um, you know, is that there are a series of force time curve measures and, uh, you know, motion capture markers that are, you know, generally important for athletes who want to, um, you know, improve their, their vertical displacement, if that's something that matters to you. Um, but, you know, we also spend a lot of our time studying movement in the lateral plane, um, particularly in basketball, where, you know, a lot of defensive actions occur, um, you know, side to side. 
Um, and kind of those performance determining factors are, uh, you know, a completely different set than the ones, you know, than, than the factors that drive you vertically. And so I think depending on the qualities that we're trying to study or improve for, you know, help improve for an athlete, um, you know, the, what the metrics that matter, you know, are a bit variable themselves. Mm -hmm. So vertical displacement, want to get, want to get people jumping higher. If that's the, if that's the aim, are there any particular metrics, like you mentioned about the study that you would gravitate towards or encourage people to gravitate towards? Sure. Um, you know, I'd, I guess the, the first thing I would encourage is, you know, generally study the athletes that you're working with. Yeah. You know, I think that's, uh, research is fantastic and has a, you know, it, it's, it really has a place in our, in our landscape, but, um, you know, for the athletes that you're working with, I think it's important to, to study them, um, because they're going to be a unique subset relative to, you know, the, the population at large, I suppose. Um, yeah, there are some, you know, classic Newtonian physics that influence us all <laughs> that, that are that are probably worth combating. But, you know, in the, the paper that you're you're referencing where we were you know, really looking at different, you know, kind of like, um, you know, we'll call them eccentric phase strategies and how um, ultimately how those related to to jump performance in an NBA population. You know, when we broke out, you know, these different sets of clusters or groups or types of mover. Um, ultimately, we saw that they all had a few shared characteristics. Um, regardless of how that jump was executed, right? So we have some athletes who love going through range. We have some athletes who absolutely despise it. <laughs> and we have some <laughs> athletes, uh, you know, who, you know, really only go through any range at the, at the hip, um, right? And so depending on, on those three groups, um, I think what we saw from that research was um, there are still kind of a core set of four factors that drive vertical displacement for, for all of them. That was... Um, you know, relative concentric force output. It was knee extension velocity and acceleration. Uh, and then just generally being shorter. <laughs> I think <laughs> not that we can change that much, uh, but you know, general, you know, height played a, played a role in there, in there as well. Um, but you know, those factors, regardless of the jump style tended to impact vertical displacement when we look at it through, through some, uh, like some linear regression, uh, models that we ran, but, um, you know, there are also some kind of secondary factors, um, you know, for all these groups that if you're really trying to tune or optimize performance for an athlete in that group, those may warrant, um, a little more attention at that point, but those four, I'd say were, were the big ones that we found from, you know, from that study. Just remind us of the four again, uh, the four, so knee extension velocity and acceleration concentric force or relative concentric force output. So force generated during the concentric phase relative to mass, uh, and then height as well. So generally shorter athletes are, are jumping higher. Yeah. So that's that's combining some of the motion capture data and the force plate data. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So for yeah for for that one we were looking at kind of a full set of kinetic and kinematic measures from both force plates and motion capture that um, yeah essentially that would help us identify or look at uh, yeah jump displacements across a few different styles yep. um, in our in our population. So for the lateral the lateral aspect you said was yep. obviously important from a, a basketball uh, for a basketball athlete. Sure. Any, anything different there? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I think the, um, the, the short version, right. Is if we see, you know, generally kind of an emphasis on variables across the knee, right. For vertical movements, right. The knee extension velocity or knee extension acceleration, a lot of measures that we're seeing impact lateral plane movement, whether that's lateral acceleration or performance in like a change of direction environment. Um, we're seeing, seeing a lot more variables pop up around the hip, right? So generally having a well-functioning hip joint tends to be a really important quality here. Hip extension velocity, hip abduction, just simply range in that sense. Um, these are factors that tend to drive athletes side to side, or at least our most effective lateral plane athletes side to side. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's just interesting, right? When you start to think about maybe how versatile a force plate or a force plate in motion capture can be, you're going to deal with different sets of kind of performance parameters depending on what the quality is that you're trying to assess in that mm -hmm. sense yeah how, how much does limb length and segment differs how, how how does that affect things i mean it it definitely does especially when you deal with guys like we see who are yeah humongous yeah, <laughs> yeah they're yeah. by and large they're they're big uh yeah. and so it, it certainly plays a role and so i think you know in the same premise that i would encourage to to study the athletes that you're working with when we're looking at guys i think as our sample size gets bigger, you have the luxury of kind of whittling down or, you know, kind of like, I would say narrowing the, the scope of athletes that you can use within each individual cohort. And so in basketball, right, rather than just looking at 
you know, all athletes that we've assessed, right. All 800 guys who play in the NBA, we're just going to look at athlete, you know, guys who play behind the four or five, right. You know, generally our bigger athletes, or we're going to look at our, our wing players or our guards. Um, so you can, the, the more that you can start to, um, I suppose, uh, narrow the, the scope, right. Of the athletes that you're, you're looking at, uh, maybe get a bit more like for like comparisons that tends to account for some of those limb length discrepancies. Cause you know, we have, guys who differ by, you know, more than a foot in height playing in the NBA. And that's just, that's just reality. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Eric. Hope you're enjoying part one. So part two is all about the training and then looking to the future of sports science and how that's going to impact P3 and how that's going to impact the practitioners across the world who are testing and trying to get a deeper insight into their athletes' capabilities. So part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you tried Hytro, the wearable blood flow restriction solution that is unlocking better recovery in athletes? While many have used BFR for rehab, Hytro are demonstrating the huge impact BFR can have on recovery and performance when used for post-exercise recovery. Through their innovative design, BFR straps are integrated into shorts and t-shirts, allowing BFR to be delivered to groups of athletes safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hytro.com or email warren at hytro.com to find out how Hytro can give your athletes a competitive edge. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by I Measure You. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And now back to the episode with Eric. I'm just thinking of, obviously, that you're working with uh, basketball players whose job it is to jump. Like, that's what that's what they do um, in various different ways. Various different, various sure. different means, various, sure. various yeah. different ways. But obviously, when, when, when I'm playing football as a central defender, or used to play, tried, tried to play football as a central defender, my job was to jump and head it mm-hmm. and obviously win the ball in the air, which stuff didn't happen as much as the basketball jumps and whatnot, but it was still super, super important. That was my job. Sure. What can we learn? What could I have learned? Or what kind of footballer or anyone that in various different sports, which is not particularly a jumping sport, but requires jumping, what can we learn? from the kind of insights that you get from, from these basketball beasts? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, that's a good question. Um, I would say, I mean, football is interesting in its own, in its own right. Uh, and I think some of it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier on in our conversation, where, um, there are some links you can make from jump testing to, accelerative or decelerative properties or things that you're going to have to perform on, on pitch, right? Big accelerations, big decelerations. Um, there are links that you'd probably lean into there. So if I'm a, you know, if I'm a practitioner, I think there are, um, I don't know there's good information to be taken from the jump test that we can at least associate a plausible mechanism for some application behind what we're going to do in a, in a training environment. Um, but I, you know, I would say, uh, football is one of the more interesting sports out there, not to totally latch onto that and dive in here. But, um, I think just before COVID, um, we did a little, uh, like a very small, um, pilot project with, uh, the folks from the DFB, the German national team, but you know, with some of their kind of like younger, you know, it was U15, U16. Um, so sent all of our equipment out to, out to them, um, and assessed, you know, I think, um, 
yeah, the, you know, it was for some camp they had with their under 15, under 16 national team. And I think, um, you know, ultimately, right, the, the, the thing that got to be very interesting, right, they have a very distinctive um, playing style or responsibilities for each position on mm-hmm. the pitch. And so ultimately being able to map things from an in-lab assessment to qualities that are going to be valued on the pitch, I think is a very, um, I don't know, interesting question to try and tackle, right? It's where maybe, you know, force plate or motion capture studies can step maybe just beyond a training environment, right? There's, you know, there's, there's data for action, but then there's data for insight as well. And when you're trying to identify if a player has the tools for a job, right? If he's going to be able to tap into the velocities that he needs to be a wide player, or if he's going to be like you and just be a central defender, you know, being a lump and, you know, heading balls away. Um, I think you know, those are, that's, yeah, I think those are, those are qualities that you can tap into on the, um, yeah, on the, the biomechanic side that will start to inform, um, you know, some of the decision-making process in that direction. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately I think that, you know, the, we, you know, that, that COVID sort of, you know, nip that project in the bud a little, you know, yeah. a little prematurely, but, um, I, I still think there are some real, there's some real value to, um, you know, even just, you know, from a, from a plausible mechanism perspective, understanding how qualities that you assess, um, you know, in a biomechanics environment have implications for actions that occur, you know, on court, on pitch, you know, wherever. So in terms of the German young, the German national team youngsters, they were providing, or they were saying, okay, wingers, they have a particular set of skills. These are them. We need to assess them and want to assess them in a, in a lab-based setting with force plates and uh, motion capture. And that was up to you to devise the test that was going to try to inform whether they were in a position to be able to do that or not. Yeah. And I, I, I think, um, yeah, that, that was the, the basic, the okay. basic premise. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was the basic premise. I think, well, that's um, cool. yeah. And it, yeah, it, it, look, it got not to take this a direction where we don't need to go, yeah, <laughs> but, does, does. uh, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, we we're talking a bit about kind of some cluster analysis. We did it with the Cameroon jump paper. When we start to think about, different ways that we can sort of group athletes. Again, I, I think that has maybe less, uh, it's maybe less actionable, but can be fairly insightful, right? It's, it's a really, um, you know, clustering for those who, who don't know is it, it's an unsupervised machine learning technique, which just means that there objectively is no right answer, right? The right answer is whatever you think kind of fits your data the best, but it takes, kind of gives you the ability to match, you know, or kind of match the, the coach's eye with a more technical quantitative process, which together can be pretty, pretty powerful, right? If you can bring, you know, folks on, on both sides of the table together in that sense, it can be a pretty powerful tool. And um, yeah, ultimately we were, you know, what, what the goal was with, with this sort of project was to see, um, you know, can we um, identify groups of athletes here with respect to, um, you know, with, with the goal of kind of optimizing uh talent identification, right? Or, you know, okay. not optimizing, improving, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, are there qualities that we should be studying for or developing at a younger age to hopefully hit on a higher number of prospects, ultimately breaking through to the, to the senior team, which mm. admittedly is a, you know, is a pretty small, pretty small number, I think for, for every country yeah. at this point, yeah, of course. um, just development is a, is a tricky, is a tricky beast, but, um, but ultimately, right. The, you know, kind of that clustering concept of saying, Hey, you know, of these athletes that we assessed, you know, you've get, you got kind of four distinct kind of groups of movers. Um, you know, what are the qualities that we can learn from these guys or what do you see from these guys on field that, um, you know, might shed a little more light on, um, what we're seeing from, from these athletes. Interesting. My last question on the, the testing side of things. Yep. Favorite, funny, memorable moments from testing some of the best jumpers in the world. Um, Gosh, I, I'm going to start with a, you know, a really corny answer and just say it's, you know, working with really impressive athletes isn't something, you know, that, that shine doesn't ever really go away. Um, right. You know, when you still, when you see some athletes move, right. Um, and especially when when you see some guys just, you know, fight gravity, like they do, um, it's, it still takes your breath away. And in that sense, it's always been kind of very rewarding. Um, you know, at, at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I think the, the, you know, same, uh, a reason that we're all drawn to sport to some respect are just the, the personalities, right. And we're dealing with the 1% of the 1% or 
with respect to what a human body can do. And it's just, uh, it's just, it, it's always really fun in, uh, in that regard. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of where, where I would start, but, yeah, cool. uh, as far as, you know, more specifics are concerned, um, whew, let's see, I, I'll put it on the oh, spot. Gosh, I, 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 look, I, <laughs> I'm going to have to think of a good answer uh, or someone's going to have to chime in and let me know which, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which, which one I should have remembered. No, um, fine. But no, I think, uh, yeah, that, I think that's probably where I, where I leave it. Also, yeah. if you want to cut that part, feel free. No, that's fine. <laughs> I, that's I just, fine. Uh, I just completely bottled that one. No, that's fine. Not a problem. I dropped that on you there. So let's, let's move into the training side of things. And you mentioned throughout this around movement strategy. And I wanted to try to understand from you, when you get to know what strategies and grouping these strategies, how training is affected based on those and if it, and if it actually is. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, the short answer is that it, it is, yeah. you know, it, it certainly is. I think when we go through our, our assessment, the general process, right. When an athlete comes to one of our facilities, whether it's you know, out in Santa Barbara or here in Atlanta, um, when an athlete goes through that process, uh, day one, they spend, you know, hour and a half to two hours with myself or, or someone else on our team, uh, arguably the worst two hours of their life, right. Just hanging out with us for, for 90 minutes or more, um, right. Going through their assessment, everything from, uh, injury history and mobility screen information, just simple range of, you know, range of motion through the ankles, through the hip, et cetera. Um, all the way through kind of their full sort of 3D motion capture assessment as well. Um, and so ultimately at the end of the goal, or wow, ultimately at the end of the day, here we go. Uh, <laughs> the goal is to have a, a very detailed understanding of this athlete's mechanical makeup. Um, and the way that we've gone through and, and done that at P3 is we, you know, it, it started with a conversation with our coaches about, um, you know, identifying a needs list or a set of training targets for, um, you know, for all of our athletes, right? So um, we have a, a set of training targets that, you know, I think, um, yeah, essentially that we've identified over the course of the last, you know, 12, since before I joined P3, frankly, um, you know, that our job on the biomechanics staff has been to, uh, you know, really ascribe quantitative data that we can put to each of these particular, you know, targets, right? Whether that's hip stability or ankle mobility or, um, yeah, active deceleration, right? You know, like an ankle stiffness property. Um, so our job has been to go through, has been to go through um, and identify which markers we can, um, you know, from our motion capture and force plate testing, we can use to essentially monitor each of these, each of these targets, right? And, you know, by virtue of, uh, you know, testing as many athletes as, as we have, I think we just crossed 1300 professional basketball players and, you know, in a number of other sports as well. Um, you know, by kind of going through this process for as, as long as we have, you start to get some contextual understanding of what good, bad, and average is. Um, and so when we start with this understanding, when the data comes back to us following an assessment, um, ultimately what we're able to do is say, you know, these are the kind of four areas where this athlete falls notably below, uh, you know, the mean or below where we'd like to see them relative to, to other athletes in their sport or in their position. Um, and to that end, um, you know, these are going to be the, the training targets that fall out, um, fall out of it. And, you know, kind of by virtue of, uh, taking that approach, that was also a very long-winded answer. I apologize. By virtue of taking that approach, what we can start to do, um, is if we're saying, Hey, these are the four kind of like real critical targets we want to address over this next training block, we can follow those, you know, by the time we go through that next reassessment, which, um, you know, depending on how long the athlete's with us. Um, you know, we'd like to give, you know, six to eight weeks at least to let some adaptation set, uh, you know, take place before we reassess and see how we've moved the, uh, move the needle on, on those, um, on those properties. But our, our coaches have done, um, a really good job of trying to, to close that loop, right. Go from, um, you know, this assessment data where we're essentially saying, Hey, here are, uh, the qualities that we think need some work and ultimately kind of testing and tinkering with strategies to try and address those specific targets before we, we retest the athlete. Um, and so that, that's been very much a, a team effort, right. At, at, at P3 to try and, um, yeah, to try and really close the loop on, um, how we're, I guess, assessing and then sort of, um, impacting an athlete's development. Across the 1300 or however many tests that you've done, or athletes you've tested, is it easy to bucket these into certain cat put these into certain categories 
if so, is there like, I know this is trying to simplify it, sorry. <laughs> no, no. Into like, like we can we can dumb these down to like four areas that at least we can, we can say, okay, this guy or this girl, we think fits in this bucket. Normally, this is the strategy we'd go to based on their movement strategy. Yep. And then obviously individual tweaks happen. But is it is that able to be done? So uh, it is. I would say, you know, in general, our approach is to take a little more, is to apply a little more specificity okay. to it. So we try, I think for the athletes who are training with us, we try and avoid bucketing. We try and okay. have, you know, it's kind of an own, you know, each athlete gets their own individualized workout for each day. And our, our coaches do a, you know, do a really good job of making sure that they're, um, yeah, kind of staying on top of updating these programs as, as we go. Um, so the short version is for the athletes who are training with us in-house, whether you're a, a pro or an amateur, um, yeah, do you kind of have your own specifically individualized workout each day? And by virtue of being a, you know, a private facility and operating as we do, that's something that we're able to, um, yeah, it's something that we're able to, to put in place. But, you know, when we do work with teams, like we do have some collegiate teams or, you know, some other teams who come in, uh, and see us for, you know, for a block. And this is, you know, probably something, you know, a, a problem that a number of folks have tried to tackle to this point. Um, when you're dealing with a kind of a team schedule, that bucketing approach is the one that we try and we try and go to. So, you know, it, it'll still go through that same assessment, but we'll try and, you know, essentially cluster the needs for, um, you know, for, for all the athletes who go, who go through the assessments, we can say, yeah, we've got our, you know, again, making this up, hip stability and ankle stiffness group. We've got our, you know, hamstring mobility and whatever other group, you know, it's something we can start to apply a bit more specificity, which at, without marching all the way down that kind of individualized uh, direction, which admittedly is very tough to administer on a, uh, on a team-wide level. So when it comes to movement strategy for counter movement jump, for example, you mentioned right at the start, getting vertical displacement from more hip flexion. When you're looking at them kind of movement strategies for just for a counter movement jump, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've got an example in your head. I'm just I'm just wanting to try try and get from okay, this person's a that type of jumper, therefore the training may look a little bit more like this, or that jumper's in this area, and therefore this changes a little bit. Yeah, is that, so I, is that possible? Yes. You know so I, I, mean? I think that I think that's the right premise. I will also preface this by saying I'm probably the wrong person to ask that okay. to. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just to shout them out real quick. John Flake and Jack Anderson are our coaches in in Santa Barbara, and they do a fantastic job of, um, you know, again just applying that process to um, to how we go through through our training. And um, yeah, I, I think we we want to be as diligent, detailed in collecting the you know the data that we that we do, and and these guys do. Um, they do a, a great job when it comes to, um, yeah, when it comes to like applying their SNC know-how to that information. Um, and, you know, I think collectively as a group, we're trying to tighten the screw on how we can, uh, understand how each of these individual parameters can change with training. But for the specifics of that answer, I would defer to, to them. They are, uh, yeah, they're going to be, they're going to be the source there. Okay. Sweet. Like it. So when it comes to. I've put in there, I'll read out what I actually put in here. In the notes. <laughs> okay. was tra right. Training athletes who require lateral excellence. And that was obviously based on reading your, uh, some of your work going through P3 stuff, but also links back to what you said before around obviously differences in metrics. If we're looking for vertical or we're looking for uh, lateral. Yep. So how is, I know you may defer, you may defer back to the guys again, and please, please feel free to, to do that. But how does training differ when it comes to vertical versus lateral? I know I've gone through the testing, but training will be cool. Sure. I, well, yeah, I'll, uh, I can talk to it, um, or I can speak to it, uh, you know, topically, I suppose. Yeah, um, so, yeah, I think kind of going back to an interpretation of our findings from that research, right, we would say, you know, generally there are kind of more uh, knee dominant parameters that tend to impact our, our vertical plane aptitude. Then there are some more hip dominant parameters that, you know, in, uh, have a greater impact on our lateral movement ability. Um, and so to that end, you know, if we're taking a basketball prospect and we, you know, see that they struggle in one area, but excel in another, really what we'll start to do is tinker with, um, yeah, kind of tinker with some of the ways that we're going to load them up. So we'll think about for an athlete who struggles laterally, We'll think about maybe a slightly heavier dose of maybe, you know, 
uh, hinge oriented or hip dominant mm -hmm. movements, as opposed to an athlete who struggles vertically, where we might tip the balance a little bit more in favor of some kind of more knee dominant work as well for them. Yep. Um, now that's also, if all we're thinking about is optimizing lateral movement or jump height, when of course we want to take into account <laughs> everything else, of course. uh, right. You know, on, you know, any other training targets that, that they possess, but Generally speaking, yeah, those are those are the ways that we'd start to tinker with an athlete's program when they come through um, to try and hone in on, you know, kind of shoring up that that deficit. Cool. Excellent. Did that answer it at all? Was it that... does. No, I 100% did. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Nailed it. Nailed it. Cool. No need to defer. No need to <laughs> Right. I'm going to see us out for like the next 10 minutes. And I think this would be really interesting coming from you and your background and the, the kind of organization that you're a part of. And this is the future of sports science. So where sports science is going in the future, obviously we've talked about a, a minuscule piece of that, moving from marker system, 3D motion capture system to markerless. And that's obviously just talking about technology. So sure. I'd love to get your take on the future of sports science and the future of sports science when it comes to tech. Yeah, uh, that's a big, big topic. Absolutely. Uh, in 10 minutes, you said? Yeah, we can push the 12. All right, we'll see, we'll see how we do. Uh, you know, I, so in general, I would say, uh, you know, where sports science is going is probably in an effort to blur the line between what happens in the lab and what happens on the field or, or court, right? I think already in, um, you know, in, in baseball, right, in MLB, uh, and also in, in the NBA, you're seeing optical tracking systems, right, start to, uh, you know, be installed in, in stadiums. And these are systems that can start to give you a lot of the same information without making judgment on the, the quality of the data yet, but they're, they're going to give you the same sort of information that you can get from a gold standard 3D motion capture lab, uh, you know, anywhere in the world. So um, ultimately, I think, right, because optical tracking is going to be, you know, play a much more, um, I don't know, uh, central role in like, or sorry, it's going to occupy uh, a lot of the data, you know, a lot of the data that teams are, are going to start collecting. Um, I think we're really going to see a trend pushed in that direction, right? I think now there are still a series of questions that needs to be asked in the way of accuracy of, of those systems. But um, I, again, I don't see the, the accuracy getting any worse. If anything, they're going to continually get, um, get better, right? With that comes a whole different set of considerations, right? Um, you know, things like how you classify what movements are actually being conducted, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on, on field. When we study a jump, we know it's a CMJ or we know it's a, you know, a depth jump. We know what it is, right? When we start to think about actions that happen on court, you know, I think that clarity goes out the, out the window a little bit um, just because, you know, the nature of sport is so kind of fluid and dynamic. But um, yeah, I think really you're going to start to see the lines start to blur between things that happen in the lab and things that happen on court. I was actually having a discussion today, or little chat today, with someone around lidar. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you've come across? And yeah, I taught like a bit. Okay. Um, no experience with it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, in in concept, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Is that is that something that you see? Um, the only reason I, I mention it is because the guy I've spoken to was going to go through a reliability study with a particular. A particular company who are actually in organizations now but kind of keeping things on the on the sure, down sure. because of that yeah, um yeah so yeah it was just to get your take on whether it was going to be something that was going to be more shouted about i guess yeah i i mean i i think so i think yeah. we're probably going to go through a phase where um we're probably going to go through a phase where there is a lot of experimentation with mm. different means of collecting the same or similar data, but all sort of focused on, on actions that happen on court, right? A few yeah. years ago, the NBA, uh, right. Installed, you know, second spectrum or, you know, just had cameras mm. installed to be able to track, you know, slightly more in depth on court stats. And I think the next progression again, is some of this skeletal modeling that we're, that we're starting to see, but whether it's that or LIDAR, I think ultimately we're going to start to see a number of, uh, efforts to start to quantify actions that occur um, on court, and you know, some, not too dissimilar from how again GPS tracking exploded once upon a time. Gotcha. Um, now, I think the next question off that it's one thing to be able to collect a lot of data; it's another thing to figure it out and, and understand it. And I think that's where um, you know the the groups or the teams that can really understand that information first 
um, you know, are definitely going to win the first few battles, right? As for you know, the war, who knows at this point? Uh, you know, it's too early, too early to call. But, um, but yeah, I think we're we're probably in for uh, you know a bit of a wild ride with respect to just the sheer kind of volume of options available yeah. to us. Yeah. So, for from an organization who were very well known for jump testing and obviously using um, force plates to be able to do that. Is there, not looking at alternatives, but is there any, what's the future of, of jump testing itself? Is it still force plates? Is it, is it something else? Um, you know, I think there are probably different steps that we can, you know, that we can, can march along. I think first, uh, you know, for our, our kind of personal next steps, um, I think we're going to start to, um, or our, you know, our goals are to start to install technology with some of our, our team partners, right? So install force plates and motion capture in a, you know, in a manner where we can start to automate the, the processing and, and collection of a lot of that information still in a lab setting, but with an eye toward using data that's collected in a lab to understand things on court, right? So when you see a jump on court, ultimately, can we relate that back to mechanics that we're seeing in a much more controlled, ideally more confound free environment? Um, so I, I think that's kind of our, our next step is to try and facilitate um, kind of that more, uh, I don't know, granular biomechanical data collection um, in, the, in the performance space with, with some of our, our team partners. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think, um, no, the, I think the, a lot of the real, uh, I don't know, a lot of the real big steps with respect to, to jump testing are going to be finding ways to bleed those findings to what happens on court or on field or wherever it is that you're, that you're playing. So, you know, even, you know, this is very, um, you know, superficial, I would say at, at this point, but even with the, you know, kind of the, the, the clusters that we identified for different camera movement jump strategy, what we started to do was overlay some, um, you know, parameters as it relates to performance on court. So whether that's block percentage, so percentage of shots that an athlete, you know, blocks while they're on the court or rebound percentage or, uh, you know, kind of how an athlete performs during certain like time stress instances, you started to see some real uh, significant differences between athletes in different clusters in these various performance categories, right? So, you know, not surprisingly, right? The athletes who didn't need to go through much range to be able to achieve a, a good jump height, those are the guys who tended to excel with respect to block rates or rebounding rates, you know, things that, that ultimately are going to, going to impact life on court, strengthening those connections, right. Through kind of continued, uh, study. And then, you know, again, the, you know, sort of the, um, explosion in, in on court tracking, I think is going to be, um, you know, really important next, next few steps for us. And I guess them kind of links that you mentioned at the start there are the ones that are going to get the coaches super, super interested. I, I mean, that's, that, that's the hope, right. Yeah, that, yeah. That's the hope. I think, um, you know, they're like, look, strength work and training athletes is supremely valuable. And I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone who at least who listens to this podcast would argue otherwise. Um, but, you know, the extent to which, um, you know, we can all start to show some additional value beyond the weight room or beyond the gym and impact things that are going to be important to position coaches, whether that's certain responsibilities that an athlete's going to have on court or whether that's, um, yeah, kind of certain performance outcomes or, uh, you know, kind of various like injury outcomes as well. Um, the more that we can start to draw links between what happens in the gym or in the lab and things that happen on court, I think the, the better we're all going to be, uh, better we'll all be for it. Hey, hey. Right. I'm going to ask you where people can find out more about the work that you do at P3. I know you seem slightly embarrassed about your Twitter account. So I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you about your Twitter account. Um, yeah, what your Twitter account, P3, where can people find out what you've got going on? Sure. Uh, so uh, yeah, my, my, my Twitter handle is, is at Leidersdorf, my last name, uh, which, you know, not the easiest last name in the world, but you know, you can only work with what you're given. So uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a resolution for 2022 to be a bit more active on Twitter have not done that one well. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe 2023 is the, 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 uh, maybe that's the year. The year um, I think so. We'll see. But I, uh, yeah, so that that's for, for myself. And then, um, you know, for, for P3, uh, you know, at P3 sports science, um, is where you can find sort of our, our company's, uh, handle at that point. And, um, you know, not to take this as an opportunity to, um, sort of plug the rest of the team, but we've got a, like a really, um, fantastic group that we're working with right now. 
Um, and I would, you know, I think they're all kind of worth a, a shout, whether it's on, on Twitter or on social. Um, really thoughtful group, really smart. You know, some guys kind of bleeding the, you know, the, um, the line between biomechanics and, and coaching as well. Um, so we've got, we've got a great team between, you know, John and Jack, who I mentioned, Trent Reeves and, and Jake Roush on the biomechanics team in Santa Barbara, Leah Borkin here in Atlanta. Um, we've got a, a really strong group in that regard. So, uh, yeah, I also want to make sure they get their, their due here, not to, not to drag this on too late. No, absolutely not. hundred percent. Thank you for that. Right, Eric, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much for the last hour. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your openness and your insights and, um, look forward to keeping in touch and chatting to you soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Eric. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode 402 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Eric for giving up his time and fitting me in the diary while he was in their Atlanta facility. And also big thanks to our sponsors of this episode today, Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Kitman Labs, Samson and Hytro. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. Hope you got lots from this episode as much as I did and look forward to chatting to you next week. Thank you.